you feel like you're walking on eggshells around somebody, they're using a different logic about reality. If the issue isn't the issue, if they will not accept notes on their behavior, GTFO. That's just it. GTFO. Get out of there. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Thanks for clicking the Tropical NBA podcast. This one I wrote this weekend on a sheet of paper. Here's the sheet of paper. Here's the microphone. We're going to go solo. I got three things I want to talk about today. Number one, I'm going to zoom back to a segment I did quite some time ago called the five types of people that will ruin your life. I got a ton of email about this topic, so I want to touch back onto it and discuss a little bit how it can apply to business. I'm going to talk about my favorite business book of the past six months. I'm also going to reach into the mailbag to hear about a listener's Mexican fisherman moment. You probably know about the parable of the Mexican fisherman, and I love to hate it. So we're going to talk about sort of the dynamics of that and why I think we're in a position where, I don't know, maybe we can learn something from that parable about what we're all up to today. So first things at the top here, I just got to say, I just wrote down this note. I feel like In the past couple of weeks, a couple handfuls of people in my networks, whether it's Dynamite Circle or Twitter or friends, are getting serious injuries playing sports that they shouldn't be playing anymore. (laughs) I want to get your opinion about this because I love basketball. And for years of my life, I would train, I would play every day, I would join leagues, we would dominate the adult league, all this kind of stuff. And then somewhere around age 32, 33, guys' knees started to blow out and I couldn't touch the court without a finger popping out. And I thought, I don't know if someone came to me and sat me down and said, look, you got to put on some Lycra and ride a bicycle or play pickleball or something. But you're 32, man. You're not 22. And I'm wondering what you guys think about this. A lot of people make fun of golf. They make fun of pickleball. They make fun of triathletes or mammals, middle-aged men in Lycra or all these kinds of middle-aged sport options. Let's toss in some, some trail running in there, some hiking in, in the forest with the soft ground. Yeah, I just got to say, like these injuries, they will happen if you play soccer, if you play baseball, if you play basketball, if you do BJJ. And I'm just wondering, you know, maybe because we're seeing professional athletes push it till 40s nowadays that we feel like we can do the same thing. But I just thought, at least for me on the basketball court, I was just one cut away from like six months off my legs. And I'm just curious as to what the listenership thinks about this. If you're like me, if you're starting to be middle-aged and beyond, have you had to drop those sports and what have you taken up? It's kind of something I want to talk about here because I've been doing a lot of endurance training this year. So I'm just tossing out for the audience. Kick me an email if you have a perspective on getting injured and then also like going hard. I think that's one of the the reasons it's hard to give up these sports we love is because we love the training, the camaraderie, the goal setting. But is it worth being six months off your legs, number one? And then is it worth handing it all in just to do circuit training at a gym 
or to go do some watered down CrossFit. That doesn't sound fun to me either. So I think it's an interesting moment that a lot of us find ourselves in life with going to the gym. I mean, it's cool. It's fine. But that's not a sport. That's not competition. I guess you can turn it into one, which is interesting in and of itself. And so I'm curious, have you met this moment in your life? And what have you done about it? I want to do a segment on the podcast about it. All right, let's get moving on to the top here. One of my new pet concepts is this concept of a personality disorder. I learned about it recently. And if I would have known about it in my 20s, it would have provided enormous positive impact in my life, personally and business. I talked about this a few months ago on the pod. I hit it at the end of a podcast because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And tons of you guys wrote me emails, like joyous and very sad emails. <laughs> Actually, we exchange book titles, lots of Amazon suggestions, lots of YouTube videos. There's been a lot of conversation about this concept of a personality disorder. What are they? They're narcissists. They're borderline people. They're sociopaths. They're histrionic. They're paranoid. You might have seen the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard thing. There was a lot of speculation about personality disorder in that court case. Some people wrote me and said, well, great. That's interesting, dude. What does this have to do with business? Well, when you encounter one of these five personality types in business, which you will a lot because business attracts these types, you need to involve the key strategy of this whole thing, which is GTFO. You need to GTFO from these relationships. Personally, it can be difficult if they're a family member in business, in community, in networking, in client work. It's freaking easy. It's easy if you know this stuff. It's hard if you don't. Because these people are uniquely sticky. They're like one out of 10, right? One out of 10 people has the five personality disorders. They are an order of magnitude stickier. They will get their claws into you. They will cause conflicts that create cycles of weird behavior patterns that keep you coming back. If, and I'm not saying it happens to everybody, but if you don't know about this stuff, I learned about it in part by a book by Bill Eddy called The Five Types of People That Will Ruin Your Life. You can read that one. He's got a bunch of other great books. But the punchline is this, is you got to de-escalate and get out. And the skill set to develop is to identify this stuff early because you have to be confident in your assessment that somebody's high conflict before a conflict comes about. That's kind of the punchline, right? I thought about this this weekend. There was this huge YouTube scandal in the watch world. As a digital nomad, I fell in love with watches because it was something I could buy and then travel with. So I've pretty much been to like every Casio G-Shock airport shop. <laughs> I mean, I love going around and looking at what this watch store has versus that watch store. So I watch this stuff on YouTube. Recently, some guy pops up on there and says, hey, I lost $5 million of my client's money. And I thought about talking about with you today because I knew something bad was going to happen. And the question is, well, how did I know? Well, this guy told us in advance that it was going to happen. There's three warning signs I want to bring up. Number one, he launched his career on YouTube by this whole redemption story narrative. He told about checkered past, went to jail for criminal activity and stealing, but everything's going to change. I'm going to share everything with you guys, and I'm going to go on the road to redemption with my audience. Okay. I understand it's pretty common for that story to be super compelling. The, the video got a sh crap ton of views. 
And people are like, yeah, I want to be a part of this redemption. But if you know about personality disorders, you might think to yourself, hey, this guy just admitted he went to jail for stealing stuff. (laughs) And I only just laugh because it's not that simple for me to make that judgment. But nowadays I have the confidence to be like, yo, you went to jail. You're going to have to do more than a video. (laughs) The second warning sign, this guy cannot take feedback and treats everything as an attack. You feel like you're walking on eggshells around somebody. They're using a different logic about reality. If the issue isn't the issue, if they will not accept notes on their behavior, GTFO. That's just it. GTFO. Get out of there. This person, when pressed, bad shit will happen. And it will make sure it'll happen to you if you're in their orbit. The final warning sign is just got to stick with Bill Eddy's framework, which is got to ask yourself if nine out of 10 people would do the same behavior. Would nine out of 10 people go to prison? Would nine out of 10 people try to destroy the reputation of someone with whom they had a bad interaction? That was one of the things this gentleman says. Some guy that minorly screws him over, he's going to leverage all his social media power to bury this guy's reputation. The moment, and what's interesting is the YouTube comments, it's like, oh, I'm so glad you're getting rid of the scammers and bringing transparency to this marketplace. But the savvy personality disorder enabled founder listening to the Tropical MBA should instead look at this video and say, I'm getting the fuck out. I am never going to be around a person like this. Anyway, the five types of people that will ruin your life, personality disorders. I think we're going to keep talking about it because you guys keep sending me emails about it and keep telling me really interesting narratives of what's going on in your life and business, when you learn about personality disorders, it can be extremely, extremely empowering. Hey, so you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You can click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button, and write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod. That's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for a spanking. All right, I want to take some time to talk about this book, American Icon, today. The subtitle, Alan Mulally and the Fight to Save Ford Motor Company, written by Bryce G. Hoffman, published in 2012. Doesn't exactly jump off the bookshelf at me, but the book was dropped on my desk by Noah Kagan. He said, Dan, you've been talking about some of the themes in this book lately. Take a look at this book. It was an adventure. This book was one of these books you can't put down. This author, he must have just followed around all these Ford Motor executives for years. And it's just a brilliant and entertaining book. And I found the message empowering. Here's like what the book whispers. The book whispers, what if your company sucks in the ways you think it sucks right now because you're not being an effective leader? Leadership is one of these words that's so big. Sometimes I'm just like, yeah, yeah. I don't really hear it. I just want to move on. Give me the details. Tell me how you are going to get your next customer. (laughs) Tell me what your CAC is. Let's talk about how you're going to make that next sale. When I see leadership, sometimes I tune out. But by following the story, I was just really impressed by what an effective leader can do in a company. And for each of us, there's another version of our leadership waiting to be reawoken. So if you combine the concept of leadership with what got you here won't get you there, maybe for 
a lot of us to achieve that next step in our business, we have to unlock a new level of leadership within us. And this is a concept I've been exploring for myself. And if that resonates with you at all, check out this book, American Icon. What I want to do for you today is just pull out a couple systems or elements around his leadership that I found really impressive. The first is, you know, Ford Motor Company comes from this industrial era of command and control style leadership, like militaristic style leadership. You know, it's a manufacturing company. You have to have tight margin, all this kind of stuff. And all the while, there's this sort of new style of business leadership bubbling up from the Druckers of the world. And it's about teamwork. It's about service-first leadership. It's about putting yourself at the bottom of the accountability chart and understanding that you serve everyone above you, not the other way around. So you invert the organizational chart. I think that's basically Alan Mulally's worldview. The other thing is he loves up all his employees. That's a quote. I love them up. So it's this kind of, hey, we're all in this together. It's a much more teamwork-oriented approach than sort of like, hey, I'm the boss. Do the SOP. <laughs> and, and if you're going to bring me a problem, you better bring me a solution as well. Whereas Alan Mulally is like, hey, we're all here to develop solutions together. Now, his track record is incredibly impressive because he's the guy that did the Boeing turnaround. And so this is precisely why the Ford Motor Company brought in him. The results were incredible. I, I won't go on too much about the results. I just want to talk about how we did it. A basic challenge that Alan Mulally took on at Ford Motor Company is, look, they're losing billions of dollars. Within two years, he turns it around for their making billions of dollars. And you might say, well, maybe he was just riding a wave. This was like 2008, 2009. The economy was trashed. And Ford Motor Company had a bunch of problems. Like They were super unfocused. They had all these different divisions doing different things with their own ideas. And I think this happens to so many of us. When you have success, it's common to empower leaders in your company, to build processes around things. And the tentacles of what you're doing start to reach away from the mothership. And it could be something structural like that, but it could also be something emotional. Like maybe there's a difficult problem in your business that you're not solving. And so instead of having some tough conversations, you just sort of see if it works out and you sort of let people go on their way and you, you let them spend the budget and see if it happens. And I guess the situation at Ford and maybe not at a lot of our companies was that wasn't really an option. They were going to go out of business if they didn't change something. But for a lot of us, it's like, hey, we're not going to get to the next level if we don't change something. And what I thought was so empowering for this book is like, what if that change was just us? What if we borrowed a little something, a little bravery from Alan Malale and said, you know what? You know what sucks about focusing? Number one, not everybody around the office gets to do whatever they want to do. Not everybody in this company's role is to make money and strategy decisions. A lot of us delegate that stuff because we're scared. Honestly, I think there's a lot of that. It's like, hey, this person has an idea of what they want to do, how they want to spend money, why they think it's valuable. Okay. Yeah, okay. We'll let them do it. Come back to me in six months. Maybe we let them do it. Maybe we know in our heart of hearts that's not a great decision, that it feels a little bit like putting some chips on the felt. And you know what putting chips on the felt feels like? Pretty good. Pretty good sometimes. That's the other thing about it. Maybe it taps into a little bit of that, hey, 
You know what's more fun than making a really hard decision? Gambling. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, Alan Mulally walks in and provides focus. That's the leadership. That's what's difficult in our companies. Once they have a little bit of success, how do we choose the winners and focus all the best talent in the company on it? That includes the founders. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is part of that focus is he created a one-page business plan. And part of what this book does is it, okay, that doesn't sound fun. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to stop gambling and doing all kinds of fun things. Well, how about this for fun? How about you get to be a strategist? I think what was brilliant about this book is it showed how in order to develop a strong strategy, you need to give it time and space. And there was even these vignettes in the book where this guy's getting laughed at because he's in a conference room with kid scissors cutting out construction paper so that he can visualize how the company is going to come together in a focused, strategic way. That's our job as founders. It doesn't mean we're doing it, but it's our job. And this book is a permission slip to do it. So part of strategy is defining exactly where you want to go, clarifying it, and then giving everyone on the team a clear plan how you're going to get there. Do you have clarity around exactly where you're going and how you're going to get there? Or is it itemized? Does everybody get to decide on the team how they're going to get there? There's a really cool example of eventually the construction cutouts and the large diagram ends up on one printed plastic card that goes in every single Ford employee's back pocket. It's the one-page business plan. Do you have one? Can you build one? And can you put it in the back pocket of every employee at your company? I got to tell you, it's interesting. We did a strategic realignment at the end of last year. And a lot of this resonates with me because what happened in our business was we got divided. We started saying divisions. (laughs) We're a small company. We started using the term divisions. And at the turn of the year, I said, hey, next year, there's no more divisions in this company. We're going to be one team. We're going to be aligned around this mission. And here's the way we execute that mission. And guess what? It means we have to do tough things because some of the things we were doing, we can't do anymore if we accept this path. And that's where the power of this stuff is. It's like, sorry, but those things do not make sense given this vision, given this plan, given where we're going. And I don't know, that very much resonates with me because that is, it's really hard to do in a lot of companies, especially when you think, hey, well, There might be money on the other side of that other path. Well, tell you what, there's money behind a lot of paths. And part of what the lesson of this book is, if you want to align a lot of talented people, you can't go around and exploring every single option that comes across a desk every day or allow people to continually make those judgments and evaluations. That it's very helpful to have focus, Number one and number two, to get it all on one page. So the one-page business plan. Final thing that jumped out at me is the book is worth reading just for hearing the vignettes in these weekly executive meetings and how brick by brick, the culture changed. And the final lesson that jumped out is uh, part of how we executed this idea of focus, 
this idea of a simple plan that everyone's involved in moving in one direction. It's really striking how he ran his weekly executive meetings. They lay it out in the book. There's this big, long board table, and there's exactly the right number of chairs around it. And you have to be there. Like You have to fly in from wherever you're at, whatever factory or client you're visiting. You have to be at this meeting. It starts at an ungodly hour in the morning. That really jumped out at me. But the basic idea is it's a similar concept to a lot of our operational best practices, which is basically a scoreboard meeting, which is you show up and you show your KPI as whatever division or company you're running and you say, it's green, it's yellow, or it's red. And at Ford Motor Company, despite the fact that they're losing billions of dollars, for the first six weeks that Alan Mulally worked there, it was all green. Every single... Every single Thursday, it was green, green, green the whole way around the table. And this guy just kept plugging away at this concept of, hey, we're one team now. You know, we're not competing against each other. We are helping each other succeed. And I believe it was the CEO of North America who one day was sitting with his staff in his office and he's like, yo, we can't like launch this car. We're literally not launching a car because there's some kind of safety defect or manufacturing problem. And at the time, his team thought he would like, you're going to get fired. You're going to go in there. You're going to be the first person in this, this new guy who showed up from an airplane company. By the way, I believe that Alan Mulally is like the first non-auto executive to come into a major manufacturer in America. And so there's a lot of people like, what the hell's going on? I just want to hold on to my job until they replace this guy. So he goes to the meeting and basically says, hey, we're red on this. And they describe it in the book as this moment where everybody looks around and basically Alan Mulally starts clapping. And some of the executives at the table were like, is he clapping for the security guard to come in and pull this guy out of this meeting? That that was the culture at the time. and. He meant it earnestly. He was clapping, saying, thank you for bringing this to all of our attention. Does anybody have any potential solutions here? Ended up in a discussion. Suffice it to say, the next few weeks and months, those scoreboard meetings turned into a more colorful red, yellow, green type meetings. I think it's just really interesting because it shows these are very talented people and how these simple concepts, scoreboard, which we talk about doing that in half a million dollar businesses where it's, we're green this week, we're red this week, we're yellow this week. We do this at this level. But look, scoreboard's easy. People are hard. And people need leadership, not scoreboards. I think that's my big takeaway from this. That it was Alan there clapping, encouraging, showing the clear vision of why those scorecards were important. Because, hey, we all want to get here. If you don't want to get there, you don't need to be here. And hey, that's hard. It's easier to sometimes to just let somebody go off into their own little path, make their own decisions about what they want to do for the company, especially as you get successful. This book, American Icon, is an injunction to take back your business, to focus on leadership as the core process that makes all the difference. And although leadership it can be a big, scary term, I found it incredibly empowering and entertaining. So there you go. You can click through on this post and you can see Alan Mulally's one-page business plan. By the way, this guy went down as like 
he's on the Mount Rushmore of all-time American CEOs, these two incredible turnarounds. And it's interesting, even at organizations at this scale, for all that we talk about processes and stuff, so much of it seems to tie back to the leader at the top. And I know I love an SOP as much as the next person, and I love these process books. But what if the essential thing weren't the processes, weren't extracting yourself from their business, getting to integrate, all this stuff? What if it was actually the leadership? It's a powerful idea to contend with, something we'll be talking about more on the podcast in the coming months. Speaking of leadership, what comes on this show often originates in my inbox. And one of the things that's been common in my inbox over the past few years is the parable of the Mexican fisherman. If you're not familiar with the parable of the Mexican fisherman, I'll try to sum it up without reading the whole thing. There's two characters. There's the humble, satisfied Mexican fisherman who catches enough fish in order to chill with the family, chill with the friends, and enjoy the beautiful beach. And, you know, essentially this is a a time-rich individual. Well, he is visited by some investment banker from New York City who's on a short holiday who sees the potential in this fishing operation (laughs) with capital and 10 years of effort could eventually deliver this Mexican fisherman a great amount of wealth, to which the Mexican fisherman questions, well, what am I going to do with that wealth after I spend 10 years to get it? To which the New York investment banker replies, well, you could fish, you could hang out with your friends, and you could enjoy this beautiful beach. And then the parable ends, fin. And this is supposed to be some kind of dunk on the investment banker. But my problem with it always is like, you know, people share this and they're like, oh, I read this Mexican parable, fisherman parable, really resonated with me. It really took something away from that. And I'm always thinking, really? Did it? <laughs> because is that what you're doing? No, that's not what you're doing. I always read this stuff and I'm like, really? You took a great lesson from the subsistence fisherman on a Mexican beach? That's the takeaway that you're going to stop being enterprising? not optimize for more choices or wealth in your life and instead just barely get food on the table. And if you need a new table, well, you're probably going to have to build one with some driftwood that you found on the beach. And that's what occupies your time. Now, to be fair, I understand that this is a parable about contentment and being satisfied with what you have. I think there's some value in that. But also, I think there's an enormous amount of value and having choices in life. And I think the reason everybody sort of hand waves in the direction of the Mexican fisherman is, well, it's kind of amazing that, that here's a character who appreciates his life even though he has no choices. But if I were in that situation, I would want to choose to fish with my children on another beach occasionally or to send my kids to school someday. Or I would like to go to the mountains and ski a couple times a year. Not, <laughs> you see where I'm going with this. It's like, I understand parables aren't real, <laughs> but something about this doesn't sit with me. And I think that's where, for me, the four hour work week comes in. This guy named Tim Ferriss in 2007 says, and in fact, remember, the four hour work week was written for an investment banker, his friend. It was a message to the investment banker saying, hey, you can have your cake and eat it too. So for me, 
there's this really interesting notion of the middle ground in this parable. And there's a character that's emerged since the advent of a lot of these internet tools, essentially ways to make money online, ways to direct a business online, ways to work and live remotely that have actually, I don't know, brought some balance to the equation here that we don't have to go polarized when it comes to career, that we don't have to optimize for time and lifestyle solely or for wealth and power solely, that there's actually this very powerful, dignified middle ground. And I think that's what the TMBA represents. So I got an email from a listener. So listener Jason shares his Mexican fisherman story. So he writes a beautiful email. He said, it was from the TMBA when I first heard about the parable of the Mexican fisherman. I had my own moment and I wanted to share it with you. He goes on to describe that he runs a lumpy business. So the cash flow sort of dried up, but he had a big pile. He lives abroad. He has a great community. He has a wonderful skill set that applies to both his business, but also other businesses. So he talks about the opportunity and the need to sort of apply this capital and his time towards, quote, more boring businesses. Jason was trying to solve the problem of what's the best thing I can do for my pile right now? And it turns out that the best thing that he could do for his pile was to put it into these, quote, boring cash flow businesses that would require him to travel to another continent, live there to manage the investment, completely change his lifestyle and his relationships, but it would be good for the pile. He writes to say, I also realized that he was selling for only slightly more than I already had in the bank. I didn't need to buy this business. I just wanted to because in financial terms, it's a great business and it suits my skill set. However, when I zoomed out and evaluated things, there were non-financial costs that made the whole thing a moot point, end quote. And it made me remember that amazing episode you guys did about the Mexican and the fisherman. Jason goes on to write a dialogue that went in his head. He said, why am I buying this business? The answer was so he could secure cash flow for his family. He asks, why do I need the cash flow? So I can have a big pile of cash to sit on and relax on for a bit. But then why did the seller feel confident to give up his future cash flow? So in other words, these two players are sitting around the boardroom table doing an emotional merry-go-round. One wants to increase the cash flow. The other wants to increase the pile. So Jason is giving this other side of the whole thing, which is we're always just sometimes, often we're spinning ourselves in loops, looking over the fence, seeing the green grass over there. Meanwhile, sounds like Jason's sitting on a plot of green grass himself. He's living in a country he wants to live in. He's building his relationships. He's with his family. He's running a business that his skill set contributes to. And so anyway, Jason didn't buy the business. That's the punchline. He says, I wanted to share with you my Mexican fisherman moment as I think you'd appreciate a member story like this. Indeed, we do, Jason. In fact, for me, I love the Mexican fisherman parable because I read it and I say, you know what? We're in the middle. We're in the middle of this whole thing. No, I don't think it's admirable the people who just constantly are just trying to squeeze every last dollar out of every interaction all across their lives. You can't enjoy two weeks on a Mexican beach. On the other hand, do we really think the Mexican fisherman, this Buddha-like character, chose this situation or actually over years and years of not having options accepted it? Well, that doesn't, that's equally non-interesting. And then all of a sudden, thanks to so many amazing technology tools that we've experienced over the past couple of decades, we can do a middle way. And I think that that's where this podcast sits. 
is right there in the middle observing the interaction between this crazy banker and this poor guy who can't live the beach. <laughs> Thinking, I don't want to be in either of these situations. I want to step back and make a decision about how I'm going to be an economic actor in this world. And I think that's a, a wonderful opportunity that we're all taking advantage of. Anyway, thanks, Jason, for the email. And thanks for everyone for reaching out to us, giving us ideas about the pod. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.